and welcome to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Leah Shin's The Dark Forest, book number two of the Remembrance of Earth's Past series. This is season three, episode four, Natural Selection. We'll be discussing the first third of part three. In season one, we talked about the three-body problem, and the hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book and the rest of the series. My name is Dan, and I've read the entire series. This is Tim, and I've only read up to this week's chapters. This is Amin, and I've only read up to this week's chapter as well. And I also co-host the Rehydrate Spoiler Cast with Dan and Talia, so if you've read the entire series or don't care about spoilers, you should check that out as well. So this week we have one uh, follow-up from one of our listeners, Frank. He is the one who gave us the information about Tyler's original plan that involved ball lightning. He did it as a follow-up, and I'll read his feedback here. I was glad to hear that the host noted the stereotypes and different national representatives in the PDC meetings. Like how during the meeting, when Heinz was first revealed the mental seal, the German representative conspicuously silent instead of vehemently speaking out against mind control. I think it was almost certainly done deliberately. The national stereotyping doesn't stop at representatives. My favorite example is in the next chapter, when Tyler made his request, Heinz joked that, watch out, his next request might be for a space carrier. I took it as a jab that the fact that the U.S. had more aircraft carriers than anyone else in the world, and moreover, when The Dark Forest was written in 2008, China had no carriers. Was Leo jealous? Maybe. Pure speculation, though. Tim, you had mentioned that before, the, about the noticing the kind of national stereotypes in the, in the PDC, not unnoticed <laughs> by our, some of our listeners here. Yeah, I don't know if um, like that was intentional on the author's part or not, but I suppose it could be. Like, he's maybe just having some fun with the, uh, the reputations of other countries and kind of interesting to see how you know, he might view, uh, you know, how the U.S. might be viewed from a Chinese perspective. <laughs> Yeah, not just, not just the U.S., but like the entire world, right? Like how they're, how they're viewed is interesting. And Frank had a more, more uh, note of feedback. And he said, one of the hosts mentioned that ball lightning was too theoretically advanced. Worry not, in Leo's universe, the discovery and application of ball lightning takes place in ball lightning, whose timeline is years before the Sofam lock. Thus, even before the Tricellar invasion and, and the Sofam lock, Cuba can still use sophisticated ball lightning weapons. I'm pretty sure Leo made a decision it was Leo, now Martinson, who wrote up the new plan, changed within the English edition purely because no Dark Forest reader in the English-speaking world would understand Tyler's plan in the original edition. I think this is based off of a comment that we had if uh, he would come up with that ball lightning plan, if it was Joel Martinson just came up with that, but it seems like Leo Sishin himself uh, wrote that. But I did notice one interesting thing, and I mentioned this on the spoiler cast, when I looked at the, the book for Ball Lightning Book, it was actually translated by Joel Martinson. I mean, it came later, but the Joel Martinson, the same person who did the translation for Dark Forest, did it for Ball Lightning too. So pretty interesting that he forewent that, that plan, <laughs> but then eventually did the uh, translation. All right, so let's just jump into the summary for this episode. So we start with uh, Lua Ji waking up for hibernation and find himself 170 years into the future, cured of his illness. Humanity has significantly progressed from the time that he's been asleep. They move largely into underground cities. Every aspect of the environment seems to be personalized and connected and have a large fleet of spaceships that can travel up to 15% the speed of light. People in this era believe that because of this progress and the fact that the Trisolarans seem to have slowed down, even stopped, except for a probe, that they'll have no choice but to enter peace talks once they arrive. Loji also gets a recap of all the events that have happened to humanity in the past 170 years. Humanity focused all their efforts and resources on defeating the Trisolarans, plunging humanity into a period called the Great Ravine, where billions starved and died. 
Humanity eventually decides that the cost of this preparation is not worth the human cost and instead refocuses on the needs of the people, ultimately leading to the technological breakthroughs. There's also been a major political realignment where space fleets breaking off and forming three independent nations. Another relic of the common era that didn't survive is the Wallfacer program, but few people who even remember it think of it as an ancient joke. At a time, humanity was easily scared. The Space Fleet Joint Council now oversees the Wallfacer program, officially ends the program, and returns the Lodgy and Heinz to be ordinary citizens. A remnant of the past that does still exist, however, is the malware that the ETO installed over a century ago called Killer 5.2 and turns technology against Lodgy on multiple occasions and tries to kill him. Because he's now joined by our old friend Dasher, he's saved from being killed numerous times. Heinz, also freed from being a wallfacer, has his own bad day when his wife Keiko reveals herself as being his wallbreaker. She tells the SFJC that not only was Heinz planned from the start to build the mental seal, but he also built four other machines in secret, which may be still operational today. Furthermore, in secret, he changed the operation of the machines not to implant a faith in victory, but to imprint an unshakable defeatist and escapist mindset, a belief that Heinz himself imprinted on himself. Finally, John Bay High is also awoken for hibernation, where the current commanders of the space fleet need to find commanders they can trust who are not imprinted by the mental seal. And since John Bay High was already a sh- shown to be a triumphalist, they decided to temporarily give him control of the ship Natural Selection while they conduct their investigation into who has been imprinted. However, as they're handing over control, they're all shocked to learn that John himself is actually an escapist and his plan all along was to take control of a ship and escape the solar system as fast as possible. So I also want to kind of go over some of the new characters that were introduced. So we're introduced to uh, Xiong Wen, who is Lois Ji's roommate when he wakes up from hibernation, kind of gives him the lay of the land. Uh, we're introduced to Ben Jonathan, who is the special commander for the Solar Fleet Joint Council, or SFJC. Uh, we're introduced to Dongfen Yanshu, who is the original captain of the Natural Selection, and Zhang Yan, who is Zhang Yancho's grandson and lives close to Xiaoming, who is Dasher's son. Starting from this point, we're going to get a lot of ships, <laughs> a lot of uh, spaceships, and they have uh, all interesting names. And I uh, you know, want to also keep those kind of straight. Um, so I want to introduce those two. The main one is the Natural Selection, the warship that Zhang Baihai is given command of and eventually takes over and, sends, uh, and, and makes it escape into space. Blue Shadow, which is a small space called Spacer Racer, launched from the Pacific, and it set the stellar bombs to form the cloud to detect the Trisolarum probe. And we're also introduced to the Pacific, which is a giant spaceship which delivered the stellar bombs from Neptune. So the first question I had for uh, Tim and Amin is, you know, this chapter, hopefully you guys weren't spoiled on it, but like, you know, the title of it is like Crisis Era Year 205 or something, right? Uh, it's a really hard cut into the future from what's later called the Common Era, Common Eras, you know, from the original time. So it's a really hard cut, I guess, was that uh, off-putting to you guys would you like to see this the time filled in or do you like the structure where we kind of hear about like the quote-unquote past like the great ravine and the the times leading up to that uh for me this was a really you know real welcome uh choice for him to you know m- make this jump um i really would have been less interested if it was like you know every 20 years or something you know some interstitial bit of story. I, I suppose not unexpected because I knew vaguely that, you know, like at some point it, you were going to get to the future. 
but I was surprised at how much had changed and how much uh, this, uh, at least at this point, up to where we've read, it almost seems like, you know, he's negated or made irrelevant, like so much of like what has come up, you know, like the first half of the book, essentially. Um, yeah. You know, we spent so much time on the wall facers. Um, the concept always seemed a little silly to me, but, you know, we, as we had discussed earlier, you know, like those, those, those are really long kind of uh, chapters that were, oh, you know, a little bit of a slog to get, you know, to get through, even though yeah. there's like interesting stuff in there. But yeah, this like kind of like jump to the future where it's like, everybody's like, oh, that wall facer thing. Boy, that was stupid, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Was kind of... <laughs> kind of mirrored my feelings on it it was like well that well wow that's that's a bold choice yeah i mean this was i mean as far as like i'd say the most entertaining section i've read up in the series up to this point or at least the most like page turning section just because i was it, it seems like he was having a lot of fun like finally getting getting to like unleash his you know future uh or give us a, a look at his his future totally and yeah like i mean obviously what remains to be seen you know like is everything that like in the first Half of the book, you know, completely irrelevant. I say mostly irrelevant because obviously like John Gahai, you know, like, like impacts the story, you know, here and steals a ship. Yeah, I'd say Heinz's plan is also really impactful, right? Like it, it wasn't sure. the plan that he said, but like now it's yeah. like a huge story point in the future. Like, oh man, not only like are these, do we have like a whole bunch of secret people who with like the mental seal, but it's actually like the opposite of what we thought it was. So right. yeah, it's, I would say it's not irrelevant i mean but not, Jesus, yeah not irrelevant plan, but, yeah. seem to see like irrelevant, like ah it's like no what is that guy doing he just like wasted time and then you know had a, a quote-unquote spell yeah obviously that's the big question i guess for me is just you know why the continued focus on him as like the protagonist is you know what's what what's the point of him uh right now you know yeah i i like this jump too i thought this part this world building was a lot more interesting than the Zhang Bahai part of of this section hmm. um I, I understand that's you know that's moving the plot forward but in terms of i guess the science fiction part of it i thought this was really i thought it was interesting i thought this the underground cities were an interesting idea and i thought the one thing in here that was clever was they were able to collect interest on their bank accounts and yeah <laughs> because everything leads back to futurama it reminded me of the episode of futurama where, where fry <laughs> finds out he's a billionaire because he had a dollar in his bank account a thousand years ago and understandably yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah and and 200 years of interest isn't quite a, a billion x or four billion x what it was but I, I you know just little things like that i i think are are neat in terms of how they're doing the world building and then the other thing that I'm sure I'm sure this was obvious to everyone except me, but this also kind of reminded me of in the first book, the three body problem, when bad times were coming, people would just dehydrate and just wait until things were better. Hmm. And this is kind of, you know, them going into hibernation is kind of similar where they're like, oh, we'll we'll just sit this out until until we're through the great ravine or or whatever it might be. So oh, I, I like I like this part. That's yeah, that's interesting. I never put that together, but yeah, it's it's sort of like the human equivalent of dehydrating. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, they didn't know that those times were coming. They're kind of just going to the future, but like, the, yeah. It, but it's not just the wall facers who are hibernating because like the other guy, the Loji's roommate, Shung Wen, uh, he he also yeah he 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 hibernated uh, because yeah, and, he knew and, the bad times were coming, right? Yeah, and and Dasher's son hibernated as well. I don't know why he did, but. I think that was his own personal problem, right? Because he, he yeah. spent some time in prison. In prison, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, I, I, I thought, I thought that parallel was 
Uh, again, I thought it was obvious to every, everyone, but maybe, maybe no. Not. That's that's a that's a good catch. I, I I did not catch that. So that's that's a cool parallel there. And hibernation, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of it's it's a big con. It's it's a very often used concept for the rest of the series. So yeah, I'm surprised uh, that between the um, the fact they're they're able to collect interests on there, you know, and and also that they were able to hibernate that long, uh, even through the Great Ravine here. Here, like I'm surprised at the uh, sort of institutional consistency. Uh, humanity seemed to have that uh, yeah. given what they described about the, the great ravine, like, uh, you know, it seems like there's a chance that, you know, maybe somebody just shuts off, you know, like, why are we uh, keeping these people frozen? There's probably a lot of energy here. Like maybe you just shut these off and, you know, uh, or, you know, some calamity and maybe it did happen that some did get shut off or, you know, some things got destroyed or whatever, but uh, yeah, or forgotten. Right. Cause like they talk yeah, about that or one forgotten. Guy. Yeah. That, that one guy who like buried, who was buried, like, well, way down in that mine you know and they he's like yeah. well my ancestors will you know pick me up and then, and then they just forgot about him totally like just like yeah. kind of, you know grew over so yeah i was like even like in like real world hibernation like where they freeze your brain or whatever yeah. like it always seemed like yeah you know like there's no guarantee that like they're gonna actually gonna like wake you up <laughs> you know in the in the future so yeah, yeah. i think similar here well yeah and despite how you know terrible the great ravine seemed to be there is some sort of positivity here that like yeah like humanity has like sort of kept their institutional together to like maintain hibernation all these years and maintain baking systems and uh yeah. sort of like respect the sort of contracts and rules of law you know over 200 years and all this yeah i thought it's interesting like how they have so many laws around hibernation like around the you know they had like special rules around um because they, they had said like well normally like you know all the bank accounts are kind of wiped out for people who, you know, during the Great Ravine. But for hibernators specifically, they have a law saying like, oh, that didn't count. Your interest kept accruing and like you don't you don't lose your money. And then they also had rules around like seniority, right? That was a big deal. Like they're not older than than, than they were in hibernation. So yeah, all the kind right. of the societal rules, like where hibernation is kind of a common thing. It is interesting how they how they built that up. Yeah, it seems like he thought this part through pretty well. Um Yeah. Yeah, and I think that again, this is like Playing to his strengths, I think, you know, as somebody who you know, thinks through these uh, like societal like, consequences of what things might realistically be like, you know, with these uh, sci-fi concepts in place. Um, overall, found this you know pretty entertaining, especially uh, the way he talks about how you know humanity, like you know, partially because of the Great Ravine, but yeah, decided to kind of focus on taking care of themselves. Yeah, and I don't know if this is like a commentary in his point, but like as a like i guess a happy accident like it seems like all of the reasons they feel like they're able to take on you know that they have these ships and they're able to take on the trisolarans is like because they stopped caring so much about taking on the trisolarans um, right right <laughs> yeah you know, yeah exactly um, they're saying like yeah everyone focused so hard on it and then as soon as like they stopped caring about it then like yeah then the all the technical explosion uh, happened and then they got back to it like oh i guess we can just take care of the trisolarians now too while we're at it yeah so maybe i don't know if this is like a societal or you know commentary on his point um that if you like i imagine prior to the great ravine like you would have had, had a pretty authoritarian and tunnel vision society to sort of focus so hard on that i mean yeah maybe, maybe that's maybe yeah maybe it's a you know a, a sort of metaphor for like you know say China or something you know, under, you know, like communist rule or sort of more authoritarian rule, you know, got really smoggy cities and a lot of, you know, like ecological problems as a, you know, 
the U.S. and capitalism is, you know, produces these sorts of problems in, by, you know, by in its own means. But yeah, I also thought it was interesting that he kind of took another jab at environmentalists and be like, <laughs> like, well, during the time, you know, like environmental was environmentalism was kind of treated the same as treason because like, you're protecting the planet for the tristellarians. And so like, that's why they didn't <laughs> right. care about the environment getting, you know, all destroyed and like they had to move underground. So it, there was a lot of talk about that in three body problems. So here again, it's like another jab at like Greenpeace and environmental <laughs> organizations. Yeah, I mean, when I first read this chapter, like I was like super into like the first discussion of the, like just like the hard cut, like I was really into it. Like, you know, hearing all like the new future technology, especially like when Loaji wakes up, oh, electricity is like unlimited and everywhere. We don't have to worry about it. And like the underground cities and and then the when they got into like talking about like the future, quote unquote, future history, right? They talked about the Great Ravine and all that stuff. Like I am like very much into that stuff. So and it was also, I thought, cool, like how even despite like his like fascination with like the um, the, the new technology, that's actually not that great. <laughs> you know, like they're like, oh, actually, we had inductive charging back in our time. Now it's just a little bit better. And the personalized like stuff is like, well, it's, you know, it's not really that personalized. Like their AI still hasn't really advanced to the point where they can have completely AI driven conversations. Yeah, because, because of the SoFan lock is still blocking this progress. So it's kind of even like, where it seems fantastical, it's still kind of rooted in reality because of the SoFan lock really blocking like really uh, exponential progress there. Yeah, that's how, how how I took it too. That it was kind of a the SoFan lock there. You know, um, like it does feel like it's very much like extrapolated from like current history. You know, where like the only the only way we seem to be able to technologically you know advance is with bigger and better screens and more social media and more sort of like, you know, like interconnectedness just, you know, via media. And now we're in a future where like, yeah, where there's just screens everywhere and everything is, uh, everybody's got a TV on their clothes. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys thought that, you know, thought the same, but this does seem to be kind of like modern social media just taken to like further, further extreme, where it's like, this is what humanity is good at and what all we can like, do so uh right this is yeah, how we're gonna like, progress yeah yeah we, we, we forget to the point where you can have instagram on your on your jacket now Great. yeah <laughs> like we are still billing interstellar ships you know or not, yeah right interstellar 15 percent of the you know so that seems pretty good like um yeah i mean it's better than the trisolarians right like the trisolarians i think they said only what 10 percent, or was it five percent the speed of light i forgot I think it's 10%. The, and humanity is super proud of it, right? Like, we have more ships than the Trisolarians now. They can go faster than the Trisolarians. So, like, right. they're going to have no choice. And, like, plus, like, they're, the you know, they're already slowing down through the the stellar clouds. So, like, they're going to have no choice but but to negotiate peace with us because they're going to be kind of limping towards the solar system when they get here. Yeah, I guess that remains to be seen. Is humanity really overconfident? You know, and they're, they're interpreting that, the you know, the apparent slowdown of the trisolarians and the probe as like weak or something or they're weakening like I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case at this point maybe they're just maybe, maybe they've somehow observed what's going on and they're slowing down and reformulating plans or you know i mean who knows right but like, there's only one there's only one one ship that's able to make it here so like how much can that do right one of the things that struck out to me and Obviously, this was written before the pandemic, but when he's going in and, and going in for his final meeting, I think as Dr. tells him that 
remote meetings are commonplace now. Taking part in this way won't affect the meeting's importance or seriousness, Jonathan said. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, all of us who have been working or in school for the last year have been been participating in remote meetings. And I'm just curious what your experiences have been in terms of the effectiveness of those meetings when they are remote. Um, again, I know he was kind of trying to, he didn't know this was going to happen when he wrote this. So I just thought that was a an interesting perception of the future where this is going to become more common. Uh, so I agree with the first part of that. The second part about it won't affect the meeting's importance or seriousness is, yeah. to me, is very fictional still. <laughs> I, I don't know, like, you know, because like Congress has has meetings now. Like we saw like in, they have like Senate committee meetings or whatever that have uh, TV screens on them. I'm sure you guys have all seen like court proceedings that have that have been online with like different things. So it seems like they're being treated kind of equally. Uh, given, I, I don't know that it's going to be true like, post-pandemic, right? Like if that's if we're going to go back to ha- everything has to be in person, and you know the online ones won't be treated the same. But maybe it's actually maybe it's a a shift in thinking, you know, where online meetings will be the same. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I I don't know. For me personally, my work was always kind of remote anyway. Like our team is very distributed across the the country, so meetings basically haven't changed for me. It's just a matter of like where I take them. So yeah, me personally, I think it didn't really have too much of an impact work-wise. The acceptance, I guess, of these remote meetings has has increased. But like I said, it's it's to be seen if that remains post-pandemic. Yeah, it does seem pretty prescient. Yeah. Like, like again, you know, um, it just seems to be like the extreme example of where we seem to be moving, where everything everything happens remotely and everything happens electronically and in the cloud. Um, And the cloud is like now, I guess, all around you. Yeah, even in toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, the internet of things, like everything. Yeah, the internet of everything. So, I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think the, the world is, is going to be, is this an inflection point for the world or are we just going to go back? Today, like 2021? Do you think like because of the pandemic, like do you think now we're at a point of like now now remote meetings are going to be accepted as a practice going forward or post-pandemic we're just going to go back to the point where we were before where the online beings are are not really treated seriously. Uh, I think very little is going to change permanently because of this. I think a lot of what's going to happen in the next six months through the end of 2021 is going to be companies and schools and everyone trying to get back to 2019 to to pre-pandemic. So I would love in 200 years for all of our meetings to be online, but I don't, I don't (laughs) think that's going to be the norm um, pretty soon. I I think, it's going to become slightly, it's going to become an option now and it wasn't an option before, but I think for the most part, companies that like doing stuff in person are going to continue to do things in person and they're just going to consider 2020 an anomaly, not anything that's actually going to be an inflection point. I think probably, I mean, I think the most realistic thing that's going to happen is like post, when, when, you know, the time where we can uh, meet back in person, like there's going to be an overcorrection towards in person, right? Because everyone's going to like, Oh, remember the good old days when we can be in person, right? And then they're gonna yeah. like overcorrect towards that, right? Maybe, hopefully, like a couple of years down the road, they're like, "Oh, remember during the pandemic? That was awesome. How we could, you know, have meetings. We don't have to like drive, you know, an hour to like a to a meeting. So like maybe like there'd be more opportunities for that. I, who knows though, right? It's hard for me to not think that like work from home is just going to, you know, going to be normalized a lot more. Um, yeah. 
you know, we may go back to, you know, like a lot more meetings in person, but even just the way, I mean, at least in like software company, you know, like work, like so much of it is already prior to the pandemic, you know, was already, you know, being done off short, you know, like, um, yeah. you know, with teams in different countries and, uh, and contractors and all that. So having remote meeting, a lot of remote meetings, even prior to pandemic. And I think given the uh, amount that companies have had to adapt, you know, set work from home policies and set that infrastructure and also coming to the realization that it's not, not as bad as they, you know, they thought, or people aren't are as productive as home, you know, from home as possible. Right. They were as productive as from home as they were, you know, in the office in most press. Like, I think it will be shift. I can't see anything, you know, just because everybody's got a, a significant taste of it now. But I do think things will somewhat go back to normal just because I think there's enough people with who kind of want to go back to that. I think it's going to depend on like, can the companies make money, more money off of people being at home? Like, can they save money on not yeah. you know, running offices and that kind of thing? And that's going to be the determining factor, not our workers more efficient or happy they don't care <laughs> it's like gonna it's just gonna be like can we make more money can we save costs by not running offices or doing things online that's gonna be the ultimate driving factor probably um so one more thing on the the future i want to talk about was the political changes that happened because you know from the the jump it initially it seemed like it's not a lot of change like you know some countries merged and some 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 languages also kind of like this they, they talked a lot about like how chinese and english kind of made one language and they talk about ancient Chinese where they just speak Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest change that happened was the space fleets kind of taking over, becoming their own nation state in their own way. And like the, and not only just one, but like three of them, right? They have the European, the North American and the Asian fleet uh, becoming their own uh, collective nation and then having their own like UN on part of that. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way. And I think, you know, we've seen that in other sci-fi where, you know, the, the fleets kind of take over. Yeah, I guess I'm still a little like a uh, fuzzy on the relationship between like the space fleets and like Earth. You know, I think you know he he mentioned that like Earth, like nations on Earth aren't so much of a thing anymore, or at least don't really have like or more like um, like like the space fleets are not like they are separate political you know political entities, but they sort of like still like assert kind of control over like. Uh, or not so much control, but it seems like countries on Earth have like allegiance to one of the space fleets, probably you know, given where they are, where they're at, right? I don't. I think they came from there originally. That's why they're called the North American and European and, and Asian fleets. But I think to me, the way I read it was they're just totally separate now, and they're just like different countries, and they it's sort of like the like the EU, right, where they have like right. their own like union, and that's what the SFJC is, where the the Solar Fleet um, Joint Council. They, they have like their own kind of internal one, but then like, I don't know if the UN still exists or, you know, something like that, but like, it, it seems like they're treated kind of equally as like, you know, the United States or China. And then these are just other countries, but they happen to be non-terrestrial. They happen to be just in space. So that's the way I read it. But it's, it seems to me like a European country on, you know, still on earth would kind of have like an allegiance to the European, you know, space fleet, or at least like, you know, be like loyal to them, maybe the way you're loyal to a sports team or something like that. Yeah, it could but, be. Uh, like there's an unspoken thing that, yeah, you should be, you know, kind of loyal to your space fleet or whatever. And they probably run their, their quote unquote countries, you know, similar to how they, you know, from the origin they came from, right? Because like Asian countries will run their countries a little bit differently than European ones. So it's probably just more natural to, you know, if you're going to move into space, then you'd probably move to, you know, 
I would move to the North American fleet or whatever, right? Sure. They would speak English. They would, you know, have similar similar uh, ideas and, and philosophies and kind of stuff. But it's interesting, like, how, how powerful they became and how separate they are from... Because, like, they, they talked about, like, how they don't want to interfere in, you know, terrestrial politics anymore. They just kind of deal with their own thing. The next thing was uh, talking about uh, Lord G. Let's just get into his, his story a little bit. And... You know what is his purpose now? It's pretty funny. I wake up and like everyone's like, "Oh yeah, there was that one Chinese guy who cast a spell." Like, what the hell is that? Like, and then you know he also thinks it's kind of funny where he's just an ancient joke now, and then he's trying to find his way in the world, and like he has no wall face or powers anymore. So I guess like any ideas like what his purpose now is, or does he even have a purpose? Well, yeah, I think that's an ongoing mystery. I mean, obviously the Trisolarans wanted to kill him, so they're you know like two hundred years prior fallout from that still exists today. Like I thought that was, you know, as an aside, like I thought that was a pretty neat uh, concept of, oh, now that he's awake, this, this dormant, uh, you know, this dormant virus, you know, awakens and like tries to yeah. kill him like a, uh, like final destination style uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> in a bunch of different ways. But it was funny how it kind of it kept getting more and more ridiculous. Like, you know, like, yeah. oh, like the, the almost fell in the manhole. And then it ends up with like him yeah. was getting murdered by a couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the couch one was ridiculous, but I laughed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that, yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. As far as his purpose now, I guess it remains to be seen. It's like he, it's obviously wouldn't have invested so much like narrative time in him to like just say, like, yeah, he doesn't mean anything now. Like he's just like an observer or he's just like the, the reader stand in, you know, for what's going, you know, what's going on. So like, he's got to have some plot purpose. It's obviously still tied to like why they wanted to kill him, but what that is like, who know, I, I don't know at this point, this whole spell thing seemed pretty like silly um, in retrospect. Um, and the whole wall facer thing seemed pretty you know, silly in retrospect, but maybe that it's going to have some unintended consequence. Yeah. It seemed to have only uh, unintended consequences so far. Right. Like the, first of all, like, Diaz and Tyler just wasted a bunch of money and then you know yeah. their plans had no strategic value afterwards and it and the and they were saying like Diaz's plan wouldn't even worked like no matter you know there wouldn't have been enough to, for Mercury to fall in there and right. you know Heinz his plan had consequence but it was the only unintended one because the the imprinted we'll talk about that in a bit well G just like wasted a bunch of people's time and money and then <laughs> didn't didn't right. really do anything so it's interesting like how they talk about it as like a vestige of how people are just so scared during the beginning of the crisis era. I, I had a bigger question about what Dasher is still doing around other than being his, his guardian and kind of being his guide, like taking him up to the surface and giving him a history lesson. Dasher yeah. just seems to be, he seems to be answering the reader's questions, I guess, about what happened in the past. And, and, and I know he doesn't answer all the questions directly, but he puts, he puts him in situations where those questions can be answered either by his son or, or whomever else. So yeah. to me, that's, I, I, and I know, I know the, I know the plot wouldn't work without Dasher, but I, I wish he had a other role besides being his guardian and his guide, I guess. A lot of the characteristics that he had in the first book that I did not find all that uh, charming. He still has some of those, but other than that, I think he's become a much, a much flatter character for me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I took it as he, got leukemia because of his work related thing, you know, when he, he took down the ETO and then, you know, got exposed to the radiation when he shot the bomb. And so he just wanted to hibernation, right? And then so when they woke up all the people from the common era, they're like, 
because when they wanted to get rid of the wallfacer program and they're like oh i just wake up everybody as part of that era right and dasher is kind of part of that uh, and because of that he was able to get cured from leukemia and then i guess liver disease while they're at it he just happened to know uh Lua G, and that's how they they kind of got together you know and kind of continued like it's not he doesn't have an official capacity of trying to protect him but maybe just old habits kind of feels like these he's the author's like pet character or like the mascot for the series yeah maybe yeah, he's just kind of this ever present. Yeah, he's the only carryover from the previous book and uh, still here with us, you know. So I did like how uh, Muji, like, just kind of had this, you know, big, like, hard reset in, like, everything that he, like, cares about, I guess. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, he still, like, cares about his, like, wife and, like, child. But right. yeah, he's now, he's just, like, a total fish out of water. Yeah, like, all of, like, I mean, it, it, I guess it's still, it, it's just, like, all of that, you know, like, kind of, like, uh, goofy purple prose and, and it parts about him, you know, falling into the, the ice and having this like epiphany. It seemed pretty silly at the time, you know, it seemed pretty silly at the time. And I was like, kind of hoping like, man, I hope this isn't really what the book is about him, him and his special insight being the thing that saves humanity. It seems like the author like threw all that out, to, you know, maybe that was a big red herring or something like that. And that's just, you know, pretty amusing to me right now. Like maybe it all comes around again. And like, obviously he's got some sort of, purpose i guess you know like because he's still i guess the protagonist but uh yeah i mean it could be just he's just like the you know turned into the the audience or because you always have that that character comes in and doesn't really know you have to have the audience like kind of connect with somebody because he's been the main character throughout the first half of the book right now it's like well we still know this guy and he's learning this stuff at the same time we're learning this stuff so that might be just his role now i suppose yeah but it's just kind of like that's a bold narrative choice to just kind of spend so much of the first half of the book yeah. <laughs> on him and then and then yeah just kind of shift like this and say like all this all of these uh i don't know what the right word is but these like narrative conceits that he was like building up he just kind of like boy that was silly wasn't it anyway the future <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i mean maybe that's the point right like maybe they're just yeah. trying to say like how ridiculous like we were during the common era right and so like his ridiculousness like even though we we're so invested in it it was just part of that yeah that's what I, that's kind of at the back of my head what I've been thinking like I don't think like things were always going to like play out the way uh you kind of think they were like like especially after this cut here you know like I, you know I'm not so sure there's ever going to be like a big battle between the or like I would be actually surprised maybe a little disappointed if it just ended up like oh there's Trisler is eventually going to get here and the story is going to be this interstellar you know uh battle between the two I I, I think he's you know going to throw us for a loop, you know, at least one, you know, uh, again, throughout the end of the series. Um, I certainly don't think things are going to play out the way I, like, it seems like they would at the beginning, you know, at the first half of this book. Wall facers are these agents that, you know, figure out the way to defeat the Trisolarans and well, only one of them maybe succeeds or one or two of them succeeds. But uh, in hindsight, especially after this, like, it does seem pretty silly. It's like, like, <laughs> At, at, in the moment while I'm reading it, it's like, oh, this is kind of silly. I don't know. But like, this is where this is what the book's about. So let's see where this goes. I mean, I would say like at least like the first half of this book was more it was more focused on society's reaction to, you know, a big cri a big crisis, knowing that aliens exist and then knowing that aliens are coming and like what our current thinking would be like if some event like that happened. And, you know, spinning up programs like the Wallvaser program, which, you know, it seems like it's big waste of time and a big waste of resources. And, and there's even like bigger consequences to that too, right? Like 
basically it's like crimes against humanity, crimes against, you know, yeah. people's, uh, you know, autonomy. Uh, so those are like, not only like, was it a waste of time, but it was like a kind of a big infringement on people's, people's rights and, uh, you know, humanity in general, you know, maybe it's just a commentary on that, which I think is like super interesting in its own right. Right. Like how a society would react. Yeah. It's, it's hard to think of like any, you know, like, ex- like version of like modern society or like even alternate, you know, like modern society, you know, like our society, like coming up with something like the wall facers, like that just seems very like, I don't know, JRPG to me or something like that, where it's just like this, yeah. you know, <laughs> this five <laughs> people or these four people, you know, or Right, especially people, who, yeah. especially people who aren't in power already. Like it would probably just be like the current president, you know, the yeah. leaders of each individual nation would come up with some plan and then they would fight about that plan. And then we would just do what we we're going to do anyway. You know, maybe the U.S. would just do it itself and China would have their own plan and Russia would have their own plan. And it's like the pandemic, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we didn't really, as a world, didn't do things in a in a coherent way that would made it easier for us to kind of come out of it is like we all kind of did our own things. Right. Yeah, I think the author is more confident than like I am in ultimately like in the power in the power of the UN, right? Like Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the power of the UN and the humanities, you know, even though we still have these like three uh, you know, different uh fleets and all that. Um, you know, obviously even within Asia or Europe or you know, if there's going to be, you know, friction there, especially, you know, Asia, but you know, I mean, currently despite we having these, you know, three fleets, they don't seem to be in, in the present state in the book like at war with each other yeah yeah it does seem like so we're, we're all kind of yeah the all the, the countries are kind of coming back to to the idea of like well let's just get rid of the, let's just finish the trisolarian thing off and then you know we'll we'll be done with it right or yeah or given that there seems to be shared you know they all have fleets and there seems that you know obviously there's been shared technology between them it's not like you know one is far, far more powerful than the other, or, you know, the other is just a, like a fledgling space program. There does seem to be a rivalry, though, like who's going to be able to, which fleet is going to intercept the Trisolarian probe first, though? Like that seems to be the only point of contention, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what I took it as, is that the, the, they're competing strategically, not technologically, like Tim said. But again, I, I don't know to what end. And it's a lot more uh, optimistic than I would be, given that, like, I don't think, it's hard for me to imagine that these space fleets be like these, uh, I don't know, like uh, secular, like nation states or something like that. I mean, me, I just think it's just going to be just obviously like corporate entities that uh, eventually yeah. end up. Right. Yeah, it's that, just going to be, yeah, it's just going to be the Amazon, you know, and like their own, only purpose <laughs> is just uh, advertisements and, and yeah, for like the f- five richest billionaires to, you know, try to establish failed space colonies on the moon or Mars or something. And yeah, that's, that's about the best we're going to do. So let's move on to the next subject, which is uh, Heinz, Heinz's plan um, and, you know, his eventual turn or his, his being wall broken by his wife. Um, so now we know like what she realized uh, at, at the end. And one thing before we get into it, I thought was interesting is that like both Keiko and Luaji had like these big realizations as they went into cold right so Loji like dropped into the frozen lake and Keiko was about to be hibernated so I don't know what it is about cold that makes them have you know kind of sudden realizations but <laughs> but that was interesting I was definitely surprised that his wife was his his wall breaker I don't think there was any signs that I could tell like I was like as I was reading it like trying to like 
figure out like that and anything that would have given us clues that she's this wall breaker but anyway were you guys surprised about that what do you what do you think about his eventual turn into uh being the an, an escapist and i guess that's super surprising that he's an escapist but it, it's interesting like you know his his flipping the bit plan of you know imprinting that into other people as well yeah i i was less surprised by Heinz than by who his wall breaker was i thought that was yeah. I thought that was a good reveal. I did not expect that, especially, again, I, I wasn't reading it as carefully as you were, Dan, but just through the spoiler cast, I was kind of looking for some of those clues and I didn't really pick any up either. So I wonder if this was something that he just decided at the last minute to throw in there or if this was something that was planned all along. But either way, I thought it was I thought it was a good, good surprise. I mean, I guess that's what her like revelation was right before she got frozen, right? Like, yeah, I think like she she connected all the dots or something with it. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think like she she maybe I don't know if she knew that the other machines were there, but I think like the thing that she realized and that she said later was like the look in the people's eyes was the same. She she knew he was an escapist, right? So she had the she had she kind of already knew that part by trying to wall break him already, and maybe she knew about the other machines. But she didn't know until she went into hibernation that he actually like flipped the bit and made the other people the the same mindset as him, right? And so she said like the look in their eyes like made me realize, and I think that's that's what she realized as she as she went into hibernation. Uh, she didn't have time before she went into hibernation uh, to right. actually say it. Yeah, the the one passage I found was when um, Luigi first meets Heinz and he's talking about like, oh my plan, my 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 spell was a failure and I didn't do anything, you know. And so the passage says, Heinz has played the same self-mocking smile that Luigi had just exhibited. And then he shook his head. No, it really hasn't. I know now that after we entered hibernation, research into the human mind quickly encountered an insurmountable obstacle. Going forward meant approaching the quantum level of the brain's thought mechanisms. But at that point, like other science, they hit the impossible so fond barrier. We didn't elevate human intelligence. If I did anything at all, it was just to increase some people's confidence. When Luigi entered hibernation, the mental steel had not been developed. So he didn't really understand the last thing Heinz said, but he noticed that when he said it, a mysterious smile flashed across Kigley Yamasuki's frosty face. She knows at that point, this is before she wall breaking him. She's like, oh yeah, the, he really imprinted a faith and victory in these guys. Like I know he actually like <laughs> imprinted a, an unshakable faith in, uh, in defeatism and escapism. I think that's the, the point there that, that she realized when she went into hibernation. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Zhang Beihai because I've tried... When I first read this, uh, the, this this book, like I think that story didn't really resonate with me that much, and I didn't really understand what's happening. So I was, I've been trying to like give hints, <laughs> uh, or like at least kind of bring more focus on that his story is super interesting in the beginning part because I know it can be a little bit dry. You know, his eventual turn here is like you know really abrupt turn is really surprising the whole time. You know, and someone uh, actually had a i forgot who it was but someone actually describes him as the fifth wall facer because he's had like the secret plan that he's not told anybody the entire time which is eventually to take over a spaceship and then get out of the solar system because that's the only way that humanity is going to survive is to not face the trezalarians it seems like maybe it's it's not really needed anymore because you know the humanity's progressed so much and i think john Beha even says as much but because he's so staunch in his beliefs that he, you know, the humanity is going to lose, that he still goes through, steals the spaceship, 
and take takes it out of the out of the solar system to help preserve humanity. Hopefully, my my kind of hints and prodding <laughs> has helped a little bit in his understanding of the story. Uh, it was still pretty left, yeah, out of left field for me. Um, yeah, like my impression is that he was always going to be some sort of wild card, you know, presence, you know, in the future. And I, I guess I still made the assumption that he was going to be like the guy that like just does the extreme, you know, cause he had already done that with murdering the people with the meteorite bullets, you know, like yeah. he was going to be the, the wild card who does the extreme thing that either like saves the day or like hijacks and like ruins the, you know, the wall facer plan that, you know, gets put into execution, you know, back when I assumed there was going to be a wall facer plan being you know put into execution. Um, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I just kind of had them, him as, the, you know, pegged him as this wild card. So like, but yeah, I mean, his turn was pretty out of left field. Like it could have been anything, you know, just saying like, oh, he's actually the opposite of what he said, you know, all this, all this time. Like there weren't a lot of hits for that. You know, there, yeah, I don't think there were like any hints for that. Um, no. So, I mean, I think it was a little, yeah, I mean, like a little clumsy in that when it's, something is just that completely out of left field and really lay the groundwork for that. But curious to see as to where he goes. But like Tim, I assumed he'd continue to kill and do whatever necessary to meet his goals. So I, I also thought this was a little abrupt. It wasn't out of character, I guess, but it did seem a little abrupt that this all happened this quickly. Um, so yeah, and and I think in general, um, this is going to be something I bring up on the spoiler cast, but I'm generally confused by where this part of the storyline is is supposed to be going relative to what Uoshi and Dasha are doing on Earth. I mean, the best part is that at least he gives us perspective inside of the, you know, from inside of the cool ships and their cool tech and their, yeah. you know, how they handle 12 Gs of force or something by, you know, getting into some fluid and... Uh, I, that, I really like that part too. Like I remember when I first watched the Expanse, and like they have to like strap into the um, the, the seats, yeah. and they have to get like the the fluid into their bodies. Like that reminded me of this part too, and, and yeah, yeah, just like the fact that they take that he takes into account, and like you can't just like you know like the Enterprise just like whatever it goes you know, warp nine point six, and it's like no big deal. And you know, I guess they have the the compensators to to deal with it, whatever. I'm sure there's some explanation that I don't get. Anyway, like it seems like more grounded in reality here, where they have to go into the deep sea, the yeah. deep sea state to actually even survive that. Yeah, that, that and all those kind of details like was really cool. I don't know if we get it later in the season, but I like how he describes, you know, like oh, what would happen to the human body if they weren't in the, you know, in the which we'll call it in the, the oh, pods yeah. or something like that. So yeah. I hope I hope that's like inspiration for like the TV series or something like that to give us some good like space gore, like what the hell. <laughs> Expanse is pretty good about that in some places, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the hell <laughs> happens to a, a body that's compressed into the back of the ship. All that. that that part about um, the pods being filled with the oxygen-rich fluid yeah. that wasn't wasn't that also from the James Cam James Cameron movie The Abyss? Yeah, yeah. did yeah, that happen that. in there as well? That they had the same type of technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah, it was breathable fluid, and that yeah. uh, both both served to yeah, like equalize pressure. You know. Yep. Yeah, I think it's cool. Like they talk about like how the people who grew up in the fleet, right? They they're like so natural about their movements in space. You know, they can like really make the micro um, adjustments yeah. with their thrusters, and like they can kind of more naturally move. Where Zhang Bai Hai and like the rest of them are really clumsy about like you know, kind of yeah. pushing themselves off of walls. Like I thought that was all cool. 
yeah, I mean, that's all that stuff is fun. Like, you know, like space, you know, space logistics and how life in space, you know, works. I mean, yeah. France is pretty good about that too, but, and I also yeah. like all the descriptions about, you know, especially back on earth too. Like, well, everybody has these little, like, I don't know, little personal helicopters. But, oh yeah. Uh, the bicycles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, I couldn't quite, I mean, I, I, you know, like I'm interested to see some like fan art or concept art or, you know, maybe the TV series. Like I still couldn't get a, quite a good like mental picture of like the whole underground cities, like other than being like trees with like, I kind of pictured like a sci-fi and like Mines of Moria or something, except with like houses or buildings sticking out of the side of the pillars with a big artificial sky, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I took it as like, I mentioned this in one of the other interviews is like, if, if you remember like the Paris casino where it has like the sky kind of painted oh, on yeah. there, like that's how I thought of it as like, yeah. Oh, like it's not as realistic. Right. Because like now, like they're actually, they said in the book, like they took like a picture of the, yeah. the actual sun from above the the clouds. Right. And, and it's like a real time thing of there, but anyway, yeah, that's how like... I, I pictured it. And then they had the, each tree, like the trunk is like a support for the underground city. And then like, there's like leaves right. uh, and branches. So yeah. there, there is some art and some like anime that I've seen, but I would kind of, I would hold off um, sure. looking at it yeah. until after he finishes the book. Cause like, yeah. they, 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 they show there's the some spoilers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's gonna be some you know, spoilers in there. Like, yeah. But um, like, yeah, I, I, I suspect things aren't quite all, you know, as well, I mean, you know, as sunny as they seem not expecting humanity to save the day and live in utopia like i'm sure there's some curveballs going to be thrown at us but i also like and you know how he kind of describes like the the demeanor of all the people that you know they're all kind of real sunny demeanor and all like right. really you know good looking like i imagine and again this is like again extrapolating from like how you know, what humanity is like now you know with social media and all like i just imagine this like world full of like instagram models or something you know? right <laughs> instagramable clothes instagramable people yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i thought that part of it was really creepy actually because yeah. we're not super far away from that today i mean right having having every surface be a screen where that seems expensive right now but in terms of being monitored and getting personalized information everywhere you go that seems that, that seems fairly within reach unless yeah, uh, I don't know. Unless Tim Cook has his way, <laughs> yeah. Like, why you walking down the street and be like, and there's bankers kind of showing up? I think that's yeah. a lot of media, right? Like, yeah, where yeah, all these like personalized ads is kind of come in front of you. I mean, some people care about that stuff more than others. Like, I probably wouldn't care that much, but no, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I don't think I'm typical uh, around you know being creeped out about being tracked by advertisers. So. So when you upgraded your iPhone, did you opt into the advertising tracker thing? I don't, I didn't do anything around it. So <laughs> whatever, whatever it was, then oh. I, well, I, I select that as a default. Yeah. I think you're defaulted to opting out, which means you will not get personalized advertisements. So you should go update that setting if you really care. <laughs> I don't think I care. I, I don't care enough to really opt out of everything i guess like i'm not oh. like looking for it but I, like I don't, oh, I, see. I don't feel like creeped out like where i have to go through and like make sure like opt out of everything and like i'm never oh it, 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 it's <laughs> it's not that you like the experience of having very personalized ads it's that you don't mind the experience of having very personalized ads right it's more like whoa how do they know i was looking at 
<laughs> radio furniture or whatever. Yeah, right? see, that, cre- that creeps me out, but that doesn't, you're fine with that. You're like, whatever. You yeah, just, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. Huh. Got it. So I'm sure like Amazon is tracking this podcast to know that we're into a sci-fi series and, you know, we'll serve me ads based off of, should read whatever next. You're going to get a ball of lightning. Yeah, ball of lightning. I'm sure yeah. I'll get a bunch of ads. I'm sure I will because I looked it up on Amazon. So. <laughs> <laughs> And Amazon owns Goodreads too now, so or not now. They have owned them for a while. So just overall, like it seems like you guys really enjoyed this chapter. Do you hope that it continues like in this kind of vein? Are you looking for I guess like what answers are you looking to get answered still? I honestly hope that when I start reading the next section, we jump another two hundred years forward because oh, yeah. I, I feel well, I know there's still some plot lines to close in our in our current world, but I, I like like Tim said at the very top, I really liked the jump. I thought it was, um, I thought it was a good way to introduce, basically give the whole whole book new energy. So mm. I'm sure that's not going to happen because there are plot points to close up. And again, from the spoiler cast, I think I kind of know what's going to happen next, but I don't want to spoil that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know we have a whole other book to go, so I wouldn't expect another jump right away. And I wouldn't mind camping out here for a bit, you know, just to... Um, Learn more about the situation here. Like I, but yeah, I, I, your means sentiment that this was a pretty good refresher, especially considering what the book has been up to this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you know, what questions I guess I, I want answered is, is what's you know, Luigi's you know, like role in all of this. Like that's that's the big mystery for me at this moment. This chapter kind of resetted a lot of expectations about how you know about how this all this might play out with you know. With regards to the Trisolarans, um, are we overconfident? Will there be a battle? Are the Trisolarans, you know, just biding their time, or are they not? They're not all that that we thought they were. But yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that's what the third book is: is the tri, you know, humanity and the Trisolarans finally coming together, or something, mm. and and whatever there uh, ensues between them. But yeah, maybe he's throwing me for you know through for a loop like. Maybe we'll never meet the Trisolarians. Maybe it's all about something else. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for released episodes, reading lists, pronunciation guides, and any other information about the podcast that's coming up. And please leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next time for episode five, Droplet, covering the second third of part three. Check the reading <laughs> list for page numbers. <laughs> it's confusing, I know. Yeah, Leo please don't do this for future books. Make it easier. I mean, I've been breaking out the reading list for Death's End coming up, and it's it's easier, but it's also harder in a different way. Anyway, I wish they would just have numbered chapters to make podcast life for it easier. Anyway. Please check the reading list on Rehydrate.space for the actual sections we should be reading and the page numbers and the ending line. The ending line ends with, they quietly disappeared into the internal night. So look for that. And that's where you should stop for the next episode. Thank you for listening.